Hi everyone, thanks for listening to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Last time, we followed Harald Hardrada from his early career in the Varangian Guard in Miklagord to the throne of Norway, first as a co-ruler with his nephew Magnus the Good, but soon enough as the sole ruler of the country. Harald eventually proceeded to try and conquer Denmark and even retake England to re-establish the Viking Empire in the North Sea. Even though Harald was a man who could boast about many successes in his life, here he finally failed. All the invasion of England got him was killed as he fell at the Battle of Stamford Bridge in September 1066. What little was left of his army made it back to Norway. This battle is traditionally considered the end point of the Viking Age, at least in the Anglo-Saxon world. But not everyone seems to have received the message that the times were changing. This week, we'll see what Harold's sons and grandsons did with their inheritance and what they thought about the idea that the Viking Age had ended with Harald Hardrada's death. Episode 31, The Last Vikings. As I mentioned last time, Harald Hardrada's body was brought back to Norway from England by his son Olav, who had been brought along for the invasion, but who hadn't actually participated in the battle at Stamford Bridge. But Olav wasn't Harald Hardrada's only child. He had left an older son, Magnus, in charge of Norway when he set off on his campaign. Now, the two young Haraldsons, both were still teenagers at the time, had to figure out who was going to rule Norway after their father's death. It may surprise you to learn that Magnus and Olav Haraldsson seemed to have liked each other, and they decided to rule Norway as co-kings. At first, they worked well together, but already after a few years, Magnus became sick in some horrible disease and died when he was only 20 years old. Modern scholars have analyzed the descriptions of Magnus Haraldsson's symptoms and have reached the conclusion that he most likely suffered from a disease called ergotism, brought on by consuming infected grain products. It's definitely an unpleasant way to go. It started off with vomiting and diarrhea. Later, gangrene set in, so his extremities had to be amputated. In a later stage, he even lost his mind before death finally released him from his suffering. After his brother's death in 1069, Olav was sole ruler of Norway. He did not enjoy this position, since he was a shy, introverted boy who didn't like to speak in front of people. But that can be a serious drawback if you're king. He wasn't much for parties and the good life either, but even though he didn't take advantage of all the perks of being king, he did take his job seriously. For instance, he decided that the law should be preserved in writing from now on. If you remember the episode about the thing, we talked about how the law speaker had been tasked with memorizing the law. This wasn't only a heavy burden, but it also opened up for corruption, since one man had the final say on what the law was, based on what he remembered it to be. And sometimes memories can be flimsy, and even altered, either by encouragement or threats. From now on, anyone, or at least anyone who could read, could find out what the law was, independent of what the law speaker might or might not remember. King Olav also initiated the construction of the current cathedral in Trondheim, dedicated to his great-uncle and namesake, St. Olav. It was a project on a massive scale, and it's still one of the largest churches in Scandinavia. Olav didn't see it finished, though, since cathedral building could take several generations back then, 
and this particular one was only consecrated in the year 1300. Olav also founded the west coast city of Bergen, the most important city in Norway in the Middle Ages. It soon became an important trading hub, not least thanks to its protected harbour, shielded from the Atlantic storms by mountains. During Olav's reign, Norwegian trade and commerce expanded in general, not only in Bergen. This was to no small extent thanks to the fact that King Olav didn't let himself or his kingdom get drawn into any costly wars or invasions. There was a marked drop in raiding and plundering, since the king didn't initiate any such campaigns, and there weren't any domestic rebellions either. This is why Olav was given the nickname the Peaceful. He was king for 26 years, and Norway enjoyed peace for that whole time. Olav even secured an alliance with the old enemy Denmark by arranging two marriages between the two dynasties running these countries. The kings of Norway and Denmark, who both were called Olav by the way, married each other's sisters. So Olav of Norway married Ingrid of Denmark, and Olav of Denmark married Ingjerd of Norway. The Norwegian peasants probably appreciated their king's policy of peace, trade and law. But others were less pleased. Members of the elites, who liked to see glory and riches in war, were not particularly happy about a quarter of a century of peace, seeing their youth slip by without a chance to prove their valor on the battlefield. They called the king Olav the Peasant, presumably behind his back though. King Olav the Peaceful died peacefully in the year 1093, and was buried in the still unfinished Nidaros Cathedral in Trondheim. Almost immediately after the death of Olav the Peaceful, unrest and strife was back in fashion again, no doubt to the delight of many a Norwegian aristocrat. First item on the agenda, who was to succeed Olav as king? But the succession shouldn't have been all that complicated. Olav the Peaceful only had one son, a young man called Magnus. The problem was that Magnus wasn't the son of Queen Ingrid, but rather a local low-born mistress. Magnus grew up in Nidaros, modern-day Trondheim. At the time, it was still the most important city in Norway, situated as it was in the richest and most important region, Trøndelag. Since he wasn't the son of the queen, Magnus didn't grow up at court, but he wasn't exactly left to cope on his own either. Instead, King Olav's cousin was Magnus's foster father, and he gave him an upbringing fit for a prince, meaning among other things that he was instilled with a much more martial spirit than his peace-loving father had been. As the only son of King Olav, Magnus was proclaimed king at the Borgarthing in Viken in southeastern Norway soon after his father's passing. Magnus may have assumed that the other things would follow suit without too much drama, but if he did, then he was mistaken. You see, Magnus had a cousin called Håkon, Håkon Magnusson. This cousin was the son of King Magnus Haraldsson, Olav the Peaceful's brother who had died in such a horrible way back in 1069. Cousin Håkon wanted to be king too, and claimed that his claim to the throne was just as good, if not better, than Magnus's, since Håkon's mother wasn't just some mistress, but his father's actual wife. And Håkon was quick to act. He had himself proclaimed king in the uplands, north of Viken, and then he travelled across the highlands to Trøndelag on the west coast. There he called a thing, asking to be proclaimed king also in this, the richest and most important region in the kingdom. In order to obtain the cooperation of the thing, he promised lower taxes, abolishing various fees, 
and the obligatory Christmas gifts to the king if he was given the job. And it worked. I mean, of course it worked. Meanwhile, Magnus Olavsson wasn't very happy about these developments. He didn't like that cousin Håkon all of a sudden popped up, not only demanding to be king, but acting fast, creating facts on the ground. Magnus also disliked the fact that Håkon reduced the royal income by lowering taxes and abolishing fees. Magnus had been counting on that revenue. But for the time being, there was nothing he could do. In fact, neither Magnus nor Håkon seemed to have been strong enough to fight the other, so they reached a compromise. The two cousins would co-rule Norway from Nidaros, that is Trondheim, but neither side was happy about this power-sharing agreement, and both of them soon started to gather troops to fight it out. Who would be king of Norway would once again be decided on the battlefield. In the year 1095, Magnus sailed off to Viken in preparation for war, and cousin Håkon thought he'd get there first by crossing the highlands, thus reversing the trick that had landed him the title of co-king two years before. But on his way, Håkon met his death. It's unclear exactly what happened, but some sources say he was lured off the path when he saw a grouse that he decided he wanted to hunt. It's unclear whether he had a fatal accident while hunting, or someone in his retinue killed him when there was no witnesses around, but the fact remained that he died. When Magnus heard the news of Hawkins' sudden death in the Highlands, he was no doubt both glad and relieved. He decided he would celebrate his new position as the sole ruler of Norway by doing a bit of raiding in Sweden. After all, he had gathered a large force to do battle with his cousin. It would be silly to just send them home, now when they had all showed up expecting a fight. Whether or not it was justified to go raiding in Sweden, Magnus had done the right thing by not disbanding his army, because it soon turned out he had jumped to conclusions when he thought he was the uncontested king of Norway. Disgruntled members of the nobility, under the leadership of cousin Håkon's foster father, refused to recognize Magnus as king, and chose to start a rebellion instead. They found a guy called Sven Haraldsson and proclaimed him king, saying that he was the son of Harald Hardrada and thus Magnus's hitherto unknown uncle. Later historians have tended to conclude that this was nonsense, and that this Sven guy had no familiar connection whatsoever to Harald Hardrada. He might even have been Danish. Whoever Sven was, the insurrection to put him on the Norwegian throne was short-lived. Magnus hurried home and put an end to the rebellion, hanging cousin Håkon's foster father and the other rebel leaders. Now at least, Magnus was the uncontested sole king of Norway, finally, and he was going to make sure everyone knew that Norway was under new management. Magnus was very different from his father, much more like his grandfather, Harald Hardrada. Whereas Olaf had been peaceful, focusing on peaceful ad advancement in law, commerce and religion, Magnus was much more into war and glory on the battlefield. Under Olaf, Norway had prospered, but Magnus didn't care. Magnus wanted to be like one of those Viking Age warrior kings of the past, especially his grandfather. Clearly, he hadn't been notified that the Viking Age was supposed to have ended when his grandfather fell that September day at Stamford Bridge. So, after securing his position domestically, Magnus left the domestic running of Norway to his father's old administrators. He wasn't overly interested in running Norway. Instead, 
He left on a good old-fashioned Viking raid in the British Isles, but lasted from 1098 to 1099. On his way to Britain, he stopped in the Orkney Islands, where he captured the two Jarls of Orkney and their sons. He deposed the Jarls and sent them to Norway as his prisoners. Magnus kept their sons with him as hostages to ensure that their fathers didn't try anything stupid. Then, he proceeded to make his own eight-year-old son Sigurd the new Jarl of Orkney. Magnus then continued on, raiding as he went. Eventually, he reached the Isle of Man, where he established his headquarters for the duration of his campaign. Some signs point to Magnus having plans to tie Man closer to his kingdom, since he ordered forts and houses built, and even encouraged Norwegian immigration to the place. He reached as far as Wales, and when the Norwegian longships arrived there, they happened to gatecrash a Norman victory celebration over the locals. The Welsh saw this as divine intervention, God's punishment against the arrogant Normans for their invasion of their land. But even if God had planned the Norwegian attack on the Normans, Magnus certainly had not. The Norwegian king more or less stumbled into a fight with the surprised Normans. In the ensuing battle, Magnus killed the Norman earl by shooting him in the eye with an arrow, and seeing one of their commanders falling, the rest of the Normans retreated from the battlefield. Even though the Welsh were happy and grateful, and bestowed honours and gifts on Magnus, there are indications that the Norwegian king himself regretted getting into a fight with the Normans. He may have hoped to form an alliance with them, but after having killed one of their most prominent noblemen and defeating them in battle, an alliance wasn't really an option anymore. But even though he never managed to strike a deal with the Normans, the Scots were open to the idea. After he had witnessed the Norwegians raiding and pillaging all over the place, a Scottish king called Edgar struck a deal with Magnus. He gave the Norwegian king control over all the islands west of Scotland you could reach from the mainland with your rudder fixed. In exchange, Magnus had to promise not to attack the Scottish mainland. This was a win-win for both Edgar and Magnus. The Norwegian king gained lots of land without having to fight for it, and Edgar removed a grave threat by only giving up islands he barely had any control over anyway. Magnus spent the winter in the British Isles and only returned home to his kingdom in the summer of 1099, mighty pleased with what he had accomplished and all the lands he had conquered. But it should probably be noted that most of these conquered islands were at best nominally under Norwegian control. Magnus may have returned to his kingdom, but that didn't mean that he had developed any deeper interest in its day-to-day -day management. Instead, the king started to look for someone else to pick a fight with. He decided to start a little war with Sweden, by claiming that the Swedish provinces of Dalsland and Westergothia really belonged to Norway. Unsurprisingly, the king of Sweden contested this claim, and Magnus responded by invading, raiding and pillaging as he pushed further and further into the land he insisted belonged to him. The Swedish king mustered his army in response, and when the Norwegians caught wind of the approaching Swedes, Magnus's advisers counseled him to withdraw back to Norway. But Magnus refused. If anything, he became even bolder. He was of the firm opinion that retreat was not an option, and instead of backing off, he attacked the Swedes at the river Göta Elv. Despite his advisers' misgivings, the attack actually succeeded, and Magnus could proceed to conquer parts of Vestrogothia. To consolidate his gains, Magnus ordered the construction of a fort on an island in the Lake Vanern. Happy with what he had accomplished, Magnus left 300 men on the island and returned 
to winter quarters in Norway. The Norwegians that were left behind were in high spirits and perhaps a little overconfident. The fact that quite a long time passed without any signs of a Swedish military response didn't exactly dampen the mood in the Norwegian island fort. But the Swedes probably knew what they were doing. They were waiting for the winter weather to come to their aid. As soon as the lake had frozen, a Swedish force of about 3,000 men showed up. That was 10 times as many as the Norwegians holed up in the fort. Still, the Norwegians were confident and rejected the Swedish offer to vacate the premises and return home to Norway unmolested, even allowing them to keep all the loot that they'd collected during their invasion. At that point, the Swedes had had enough and attacked over the ice. They captured and burned the fort, and this time the terms offered to the Norwegians were less generous. The survivors were still allowed to return home to Norway, but first they had to surrender all their belongings and suffer a ritual beating with sticks. King Magnus was livid when he learned of the destruction of the fort and the humiliation of his soldiers. He invaded Sweden again the following year, recapturing the same areas as the year before. But this time he wasn't as successful though. Magnus and his men were ambushed by Swedish forces and forced to flee back to their ships, suffering heavy losses. According to the Danish historian Saxo Grammaticus, Magnus had to flee so abruptly that he didn't even have time to put his shoes on, and after that incident, he was forever known as Magnus Barefoot. Even though he had suffered a setback, Magnus wasn't ready to admit defeat. So the war raged on. It was only when the King of Denmark, who worried that the continued war between Norway and Sweden would spill over into his own kingdom, invited his colleagues to a summit to negotiate a deal that Magnus agreed to cancel further hostilities. The three Scandinavian kings met close to the river Göta Elv, where the three kingdoms bordered each other. Their negotiations led to a peace agreement in which Magnus acquired the Swedish region of Dalsland for himself and his descendants. To seal the deal, Magnus married the daughter of the king of Sweden, Margaret, who was then given the nickname Fredkulla, meaning peace maiden. Since Magnus's and Margaret's marriage was childless, there were no Norwegian descendants who could claim Dalsland, so after Magnus's death, the region reverted to Sweden. By now, Magnus must have felt like he was on a roll. He had conquered a bunch of islands off the British mainland, and he had incorporated a Swedish province into his kingdom. But he was just getting started. Soon after returning from the meeting with his Danish and Swedish colleagues, Magnus set out on yet another tour of conquest. This time, he had his sights set on Ireland. His fleet, which reached the Irish coast in 1101, or perhaps in 1102, was larger than the one he had brought last time he went raiding in the, this part of the world. Irish chroniclers claim that Magnus had come to conquer Ireland. But if that was indeed the case, it wasn't going to be as easy as it had been to capture Orkney or the Isle of Man. For one thing, Ireland was still politically divided between petty kings who had generations of experience fighting each other. Magnus risked getting sucked into the fierce and offer brutal domestic Irish power struggles, and if so, he wouldn't be the first Scandinavian invader to suffer that fate. Just like last time he was campaigning in the neighbourhood, Magnus set up his headquarters on the Isle of Man. There, he awaited reinforcements sent from Orkney, ruled by his son Sigurd, who was 12 years old by now, before making his move. He had some initial success, 
but Magnus soon realised he wasn't going to be able to take Ireland by force, so instead he approached the High King of Ireland, whom the Scandinavians called Miriartak, because they couldn't pronounce his Irish name, and offered him a deal. The two sides agreed to a one-year peace, where Magnus recognised the High King, and Miriartak, in turn, recognised that Magnus was in control of the, the Dublin region, with its sizable Scandinavian population. As an additional sign of goodwill, Magnus' son Sigurd, the Jarl of Orkney, married Miriartak's daughter. On their wedding day, Magnus elevated his 12-year-old son Sigurd to be his co-king in charge of the western lands, so basically the islands and lands Magnus had managed to conquer in the British Isles. This was a great deal for Magnus, since it allowed him to establish a presence on Ireland without too much fighting. But the High King also had his reasons for granting the, the Norwegians such a favourable deal. He wanted to use Magnus and his force in his own war against another Irish petty king. After they had signed the agreement, Miriartak did manage to lure Magnus along on joint raiding expeditions that only ended when the winter arrived in 1102. Around this time, Miriartak married a niece of one of the Norman lords Magnus had killed in Wales back in 1098. Maybe that should have been a warning sign to the Norwegian, but he didn't seem to think that anything was amiss or afoot. And why should he? After all, he and Miriartak had struck a deal and engaged in some rather successful campaigning together. Magnus really enjoyed a good campaign. The Norwegian king was a valiant and brave warrior, not one to shy away from danger. When people around him asked him to be more careful, he actually brushed them off, saying that kings are meant for glory, not for a long life. Even though that might have sounded cool, I can only assume that Magnus didn't mean it literally. But it were to come true earlier than he probably would have hoped. After having spent the spring and summer in Ireland, Magnus was set to return to Norway in August of 1103. He hadn't been there for quite a while now, and he was the king of the place after all. Miriartak promised to bring him some nice juicy cows to bring along to have something to snack on during the journey. They had agreed to meet up in the middle of August, but the high king Miriartak never showed up. Now Magnus started to get suspicious, but not suspicious enough to conclude that he should just get out of Ireland as soon as possible, never mind the beef that he'd been promised. Instead, on August 24th, he took his retinue and went inland, looking for the, his Irish allies. Soon enough they came across the Irishmen, or maybe the Irish came across them. Norse sources described a large force emerging from hiding places in an ambush, just as the Norwegians were traversing a swamp, so their forces were spread out and particularly vulnerable. Their Irish ally had turned on them like Irish kings had a tendency to do in the never-ending game of musical chairs that was Irish politics. Magnus and his men were taken by surprise and were not in battle order. The king ordered a shield wall and tried to have his men back out of the swamp to higher ground where it would be easier to fight. They managed to kill many of the attackers, but in the end, there were just too many of them. At some point, a contingent of Norwegians that the king sent to attack the Irish from the side in a flanking manoeuvre just fled the battlefield instead of attacking the enemy as Magnus had ordered them to do. That sealed the fate of the remaining Norwegians, but they kept fighting. According to Scandinavian sources, 
Magnus fought on, even though he had been pierced by a spear through not one, but both thighs. Whatever the condition of his legs might have been, in the end, an Irishman with an axe managed to reach him and buried his weapon in the neck of the Norwegian king. When the other Norwegians saw their king fall, all of them, who were still alive, fled, trying to make it back to the ships. Magnus Barefoot has the distinction of being the last Norwegian king to fall in battle abroad. So far. I mean, technically, Norway is still a monarchy, so you never know what may happen in the future. But with Magnus's death, direct Norwegian control over territories in the British Isles was effectively lost, even though some islands remained nominally Norwegian for quite some time. As mentioned before, Dalsland was also returned to Sweden since Magnus and Margaret Peacemaiden hadn't had any children. Magnus had wanted to be like his grandfather, a valiant and glorious warrior, and he was, but he also resembled Harald Hardrada by getting himself killed while on campaign in the British Isles. In the end, all Magnus's costly wars had come to nothing, and all his territorial gains were erased when he died. Still, if he had been more successful in retaining his conquests, he would definitely have been able to postpone the end of the Viking Age to his death in 1103, at the very least. Magnus had five sons, with five different women, including Sigurd, his co-king, who managed to get out of Ireland alive and return to Norway. As I'm sure you can imagine, Magnus's death caused fighting between his sons for the throne. That way, the domestic peace that Olaf the Peaceful had established also came to an end, and the early Norwegian Middle Ages were plagued by the same kind of dynastic wars that had characterized the Viking Age. Next time, we'll kick off the Middle Ages for real, with an overview of Scandinavia as it left the Viking Age behind. We'll talk about why the Viking Age ended, what's new about the Middle Ages, and what to expect going forward. But before we wrap up today, I would like to answer a question that I've received from a listener called Torkild. Torkild reached out to me on Facebook and asked about the usage of crowns in Scandinavia and when the first Scandinavian coronation took place. This is an excellent question, which I'll be more than happy to try and answer. First of all, what is a coronation? Well, in the most basic sense of the word, it's a ceremony where a crown is placed on the head of a monarch, officially confirming that the person wearing the crown is the legitimate head of the monarchy. Even though such ceremonies existed in pre-Christian cultures and continue to exist in non-Christian contexts today, in Europe generally, and definitely in Scandinavia specifically, coronations are Christian affairs. And in the Christian context, the ceremony is ultimately a symbol of the monarch having this position by the grace of God, being appointed by God to rule over a specific territory. And since Christianity has been the dominant religion in Europe for a very long time by now, the coronation ceremony there took on a Christian religious meaning. In pre-Christian Scandinavia, the kings were nowhere important enough to be considered ruling by divine intervention or approval, and it took some time for the continental custom of crowning kings to reach various Scandinavian courts. The first Scandinavian coronation that we know for sure actually happened took place in Bergen in Norway in the year 1163, when the boy king Magnus Erlingsson was crowned king. He was only five years at the time, and his claim to the throne was iffy, since his royal connection was through his mother, who in turn was the daughter of King Sigurd the Crusader. And yes, Sigurd the Crusader was the very same Sigurd we talked about in today's episode, 
Magnus Barefoot's son, who was made Jarl of Orkney at the age of 11, then made to marry the daughter of the High King of Ireland at the age of 12, and finally escaped back to Norway after his father was killed in an ambush, betrayed by Sigurd's father-in-law in August 1103. Anyway, arranging a continental-style coronation for the boy was supposed to boost his legitimacy in the eyes of the Norwegian nobility. This novelty was beneficial to the church as well. By introducing the ceremony of a coronation to Scandinavia, the church both strengthened young Magnus's claim to the throne and the church's own position as an important power player in Norwegian society. Since the boy king had been given the official stamp of approval by the church, it would have been like going against God himself to oppose King Magnus. And implicitly, the church was also given the power to validate who should be the rightful king. That way, the coronation is a clear example of the mutually beneficial symbiosis between the monarchy and the church that we see developed during the Middle Ages, not only in Scandinavia, of course, but in several places in Europe. Still, it would take almost 50 years before the ceremony was adopted in Sweden, with the coronation of Erik Knutsson at Uppsala in the year 1210, and the Danish kings would have to wait even longer. With time, the coronation became intimately connected with the institution of monarchy itself, to the extent that the very concept of the crown became synonymous with the monarchy. This is still the case. Also in Scandinavia, even though all three Scandinavian present-day monarchies have abolished the custom of crowning their monarchs. In this context, I should probably also point out that it's technically anachronistic to talk about the crown in this way before the coronation ceremony is introduced. And in general, I've tried to avoid using the term crown when talking about Scandinavian monarchies so far on the show, but I fear I might have slipped up once or twice. So for clarity's sake, let me stress that so far on the show, no Scandinavian kings that we've talked about have actually been crowned. Thank you for that great question, Torkild. If you also have a question you would like to ask, you can do what Torkild did and send me a message via the show's Facebook page, facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. You should also like and follow the page if you're interested in more content related to Scandinavian history. In addition, you can also follow me and send me messages on Twitter at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you. Before we go, I would also like to say thank you to everyone who's purchased my book on Viking mythology called Thor, Odin, Loki and the Old Norse Myths, where I delve a little deeper into Viking Age religion than I had time to do here on the show. Thank you also to everyone who's taken the time and effort to review the podcast, either on Facebook or on Apple Podcasts. It means more than you might think to hear from people who enjoy the show. Thank you to all of you.